Beloved, if you please turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, and beginning in verse 12, we will focus in once again this morning on verses 14 through 17, but for a little context, uh, we will uh, read that section. Uh, if you are visiting with us today, uh, perhaps for the first time, uh, once again, we warmly uh, welcome you to our congregation, and we hope uh, that you've already been blessed by our worship, but that you'll continue to be blessed through the preaching of God's Word. We have been in Romans for some time, uh, and uh, we hope that uh, you'll be encouraged as we continue on in Romans chapter 8. Please stand with me for the reading of God's holy Word, starting in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Let us pray. Our Father, as we come once again to this marvelous text of Scripture, that which teaches us who we are. And whose we are as sons of God, saved by grace through faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would convict us of our sin, that you would, by your Spirit, bring about true repentance in our hearts, and that we would look to Christ for our salvation. O oh Lord, bless the preaching of your word, we pray, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Many of you, no doubt, enjoy hiking. Uh, there are lots of beautiful places to walk here in the low country, uh, but one hardly talks about hiking in the low, low country. You have to go to the upstate uh, for that. And uh, one of the best parts, of course, about a good mountain hike is ascending the peak, finally reaching the top and enjoying that panoramic view of God's beautiful creation. Indeed, when you reach the top, you don't immediately turn around and start heading back down the mountain. If you did that, that would be kind of weird. No, you don't rush back down. You, you linger. You linger. You enjoy the scene. You take time to gaze upon the breathtaking wonder of God's handiwork. Well, this morning we return to the glorious mountaintop view of God's gospel in Romans chapter 8. We've been making our way up this mountain of Romans for some time now, and at each turn, the Holy Spirit has been showing us these magnificent vistas of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And here in chapter 8, if, if, if the book of Romans is the sort of Mount Everest of the gospel, then Romans 8 is the peak. It's where we get this glorious, breathtaking panorama of the nature and benefits of redemption in Christ. And getting a view by faith of the gospel in Romans 8 is getting a view of the perfect love of the triune God for sinners. That's what makes this chapter so exceptional, so glorious, is that here we get a view, a panoramic view, as it were, of the sovereign love of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are all for your salvation. The reason why all of the armies of hell could not together against just you as an individual strip you from Christ is because you are in the hands of the eternal Son of God who has all authority in heaven and on earth. 
No one can separate you and me from the love of God. And contrary to a salvation based upon human works or family bloodlines or religious ritual or good intentions or a kind of uh, uh, denominationalism or traditionalism, the Apostle Paul has explained to us in Romans again and again that salvation is a gift from God. It is not that which is earned. It is that which is given to us and received by us. And it's based solely upon faith in the person and redemptive work of Christ. We can do nothing to save ourselves. Amen? Nothing. We can do nothing to save ourselves. We are guilty and helpless. But while we were still weak... Paul writes in Romans 5 and verse 6, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It isn't that God looked through the portals of time and saw all these wonderful people that he's going to send his son to die for. God sent his son to die for his enemies, for sinners, for rebels, which is what we are in our natural selves. And the Apostle Paul has been laboring and toiling to teach the nascent Christians in Rome what a great salvation has been accomplished for them and to explain to them their new freedom, their new identity, and their new privileges in union with Christ He wants the church to understand their new standing and position with God, not only as those who are justified, but as those who are adopted as sons. Now, anybody who is in the marketing world understands branding. And when you understand branding, you understand that you want people to associate themselves with your brand, right? I mean, you want it on their chest, You want it on them. Branding is important. Identification is important. You want people to identify with the shoe that you're trying to sell. Some of you may have noticed I like gray New Balances. You might have noticed that. Uh, If you haven't, you're not a very observant person uh, because I've been wearing them for 25 years, quite literally for 25 years. People make fun of me on Facebook about it. I identify with those shoes. I'm all in. Great new balances. If they go out of, 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 of style or whatever, not style, but you'll say, well, they already went out of style, John. If you got that. If, if they ever stop making them, I'm in trouble. But that's the thing. They want you to identify. And in a much grander, glorious way, God wants us to understand who we are and who we are to be identified with. And that itself will motivate and inspire and encourage godly, thankful Christian living. It's the guilt-driven, fear-driven kind of preaching and instruction and, and discipleship that so many have known. And it always crashes and burns in the end. And we'll think about that more in a few minutes. But here, God wants the church to understand their new standing and position with himself, not only as those who are justified, but also as those who are adopted as sons. You are not only justified, dear believer, who has faith in Christ, you are adopted as God's sons, as we considered Last time we were together in these verses, we are no longer spiritual orphans. No, we are sons in the Son. Indeed, united to Christ, the eternal Son of God, and indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, we are named God's children. We see it reiterated over and over in the text that I just read. If being born again and justified and indwelt with God's Spirit weren't enough to show us how 
loved we are and how secure we are in Christ, Paul teaches us here in Romans 8, 15 through 17 and elsewhere, that we have received the spirit of adoption and are eternally privileged to call God by that term of endearment, by that endearing name of Abba, Father. You have that privilege. God is not just your sovereign maker, dear Christian. He is not just your creator. He is your loving heavenly Father. Lord, teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven. Dear one, He is not just your God. God is not just your God. He is your Abba, Father. This teaching is intended to build up the faith of God's people, particularly and specifically here in this context for a suffering people. The early church was under the hand and persecution and pressure of uh, a government that was hostile towards Christianity. So Paul is reminding them of who they are, that they would be able to bear up under that pressure and persecution, being ostracized by neighbors and friends, unable to get jobs because of their faith in Christ. Here, Paul wants to encourage them to understand who they are, that they would be able to stand firm. This teaching is intended to build up our faith, to assure us of God's unbreakable love, to remind us, dear ones, that we are as likely to be separated from God the Father as Christ is, and we know that that is impossible. We know that that is impossible. I want to read to you a quote from John Calvin from his commentary in Romans. Listen to this, quote, It is for children that inheritance is appointed. It is for children that inheritance is appointed. Since God then has adopted us as his children, he has at the same time ordained an inheritance for us. He then intimates what sort of inheritance it is. That is, heavenly. And therefore, because it is heavenly, incorruptible and eternal, such as Christ possesses. It is eternal. It is incorruptible, such as Christ possesses. It's the same inheritance. He goes on. And his possession, Christ's possession of it, takes away all uncertainty. And it is a commendation of the excellency of this inheritance that we shall partake of it is common with the only begotten Son of God. He goes on to write later, Paul extols this inheritance promised to us that we may, quote, manfully despise the allurements of the world and patiently bear whatever troubles may press on us in this life. This is the practical reason for this glorious doctrine. This is how it applies to us in the Christian life. This mountain vista of God's gospel to which Paul takes us is meant to cultivate confidence in us, courage and comfort in our Christian lives. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, even with all of this rich doctrine set forth, it is not uncommon for believers to struggle with a personal assurance of salvation. Perhaps you've struggled with this yourself. Perhaps you're struggling with it right now. Maybe you're wondering right now if God really loves you and if you're truly a redeemed child of God. If so... You are not alone. If so, you are not alone. I have, over the last 23 years of pastoral ministry, witnessed many Christians who have struggled with assurance of salvation. It's not uncommon. Why? Well, there are several reasons why a person may be struggling with assurance. For some, for some it is due to unrepentant 
patterns of sin. It's due to unrepentant patterns of sin, allowing sin to grow and to take hold of one's life and to allow it to kind of take over and to quench the spirit and to, to therefore weaken assurance in the life of the believer. Sin will do that. Sin will do that. Secondly, a lack of assurance may be due to a neglect of the worship of God. It may be due to a neglect of the preaching of the word and to the sacraments and prayer and to uh, the worship of God's people and to the fellowship of God's people. You see, these objective means of grace are meant by God to strengthen us, to mature us, and to assure us of his presence and faithfulness in our lives. If we separate ourselves from them, then we should not be surprised when we begin to wonder if we're even Christians at all. Again, these means of grace were designed to remind us every Lord's Day of who we are and whose we are, thus maintaining and strengthening the assurance of God's saving work and presence in our lives. Thirdly, a weakened assurance may be in response to suffering. People ask the question in the midst of suffering, where is God? Has he abandoned me? Sometimes people feel abandoned by God in their suffering. Rather than trusting Him in the midst of their suffering, they feel abandoned. We see the biblical writers expressing this, particularly in the Psalms. Sometimes we can be obsessively focused on the why of suffering rather than taking comfort in the presence and promises of God in the midst of suffering. Paul, of course, responds to this human impulse in Romans 8, 18 and following, the very next section, when he says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's that weight of glory that C.S. Lewis wrote about. The weight of glory. We focus on the sufferings rather than on the glory. And so we become downcast and we begin to doubt God. Fourthly, a weakened assurance is at times caused by a lopsided focus on one's subjective feelings and inner experience rather than the objective and uh, person and redemptive work of Jesus Christ. The dominant focus is upon how I feel and not upon what God has done in Christ and what Christ is doing right now in his heavenly high priesthood in, in glory. Many who struggle with assurance become excessively introspective, thus taking their eyes off Christ and focusing primarily upon the motions of their own hearts. This is not uncommon. Fifthly, a weakened assurance can be attributed to an erroneous view of salvation by works. If a person's works play into their salvation then, of course, a person's lack of works can play into the losing of that same salvation. And so we can understand why someone who believes in salvation by cooperation rather than salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone would at times wonder if they were ever saved in the first place or if they believe somehow that the sincerity of a sinner's prayer that they prayed at one point in their life uh, may be in question. And they're putting their confidence in a moment or an experience that happened a long time ago rather than in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. You see the difference. And so these five reasons for a lack of assurance are not the only reasons, but they are perhaps the most prominent ones. Sin, a neglect of the means of grace, suffering, an over-focus on the subjective experience, and an erroneous view of salvation, all of these work to undermine the assurance of God's people. That is, the assurance of them knowing that they are children of God. But here in Romans 8, the Holy Spirit, through Paul, 
provides invaluable truth to counter these subversions to assurance. All of these things which Satan is using and our flesh is using and the world is using to undermine our assurance. Because think about it, once you undermine the assurance of a believer, what is left there? Oftentimes it is despair. Uh, It is at least roots of despair, struggle. But we know not ultimately, praise the Lord. So Paul provides this invaluable truth. But before we consider them, the, uh, the responses to these various issues concerned with assurance, it's important to understand the Bible and our Reformed Confession do not teach that believers possess a perfect and infallible assurance. Nobody has that. Dear believer, you who may be struggling with assurance, understand this. Nobody in this room has perfect assurance of faith. To say that would be to say that there is a good work that we do and that of the essence of faith is perfect, infallible assurance. If that were true, then any time a doubt came into your mind, you would need to immediately doubt whether or not you were saved at all. And we know that is not the case. And we know that our Reformed heritage and confessions reinforce that fact that that is not the case. The Father, the Father loves you in the midst of your struggles, in the midst of your fight against indwelling sin, in the midst of your inner struggles with faith. He does not cast you out. Just like a loving parent, and just like much greater than, but comparable to, a loving parent never casting out their child when they're going through struggles and difficulties. Are we to say that God's love is less than or weaker than the love of a human being towards their own child? The Father loves and keeps you, dear believer. And the Holy Spirit loves you and indwells you and keeps you. Christ does not dispossess you because of your doubts and inner struggles. No, he'll never let you go. The Bible says that a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Maybe right now, maybe right now you feel like a bruised reed a reed that's just hanging and, and, and could potentially snap off at any time. You're feeling that way. Maybe you feel like a smoldering wick, that you, you, you have faith, but it's just, it's just smoldering. It's just little. Your faith is small, it's tiny. And whatever, whatever I brought up earlier, maybe it's something else, is affecting that assurance of your salvation. Well... Be assured of this, that perfect, infallible assurance is not of the essence of faith. Faith is a gift from God, lest any man should boast. Faith is that which is received as a gift and then which receives all that Christ is and has for us in our salvation. Westminster Larger Catechism, question 81, says this. Westminster Larger Catechism, question 81. Are all true believers at all times assured of their present being in the estate of grace and that they shall be saved? Are all true believers at all times assured of their present being in the state of grace and that they shall be saved? Answer, assurance of grace and salvation not being of the essence of faith, true believers may wait long before they obtain it and after the enjoyment thereof may have it weakened and intermitted through manifold distempers, sins, temptations, and desertions. Now listen. Yet are they never left without such a presence and support of the Spirit of God as keeps them from sinking into utter despair. Praise the Lord for that. 
This is the Westminster Larger Catechism. This is our confession of faith based on Scripture, based on the Word of God. Romans 8 being a part of the whole section of this catechism on adoption. That we may wait long, a long time before we receive a kind of strong assurance of faith. And also you may have a strong assurance of faith and it may weaken at different times. But the Lord's love for you never weakens. Your union with Christ never weakens. His hold on you, dear one, never weakens because you're in the hands of Christ. You are united to him. What an encouragement to the believer with a weakened assurance. Dear one, just as a loving earthly father would never disown his son who is struggling with fear and doubt, even more will our heavenly father never disown his redeemed sons and daughters. Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Not even a lack of assurance. Not even a lack of assurance. Now, I do want to say, it's important to say, that there are those with a false assurance. Those who are with a false assurance. What is a false assurance? A false assurance is possessed by someone who doesn't really believe the gospel or who may give mental assent to the gospel, but whose life shows really no fruit, no clear fruit of being born again. Uh, this person is living in, in sin. They, they, uh, they, uh, they're doing all kinds of uh, worldly things. They're lying. Their, li- their, their lives are full of lies. Uh, they're uh, pr- any number of kinds of sins, but they have this Assurance, well, of course I'm a Christian. Of course I'm saved. That's a false assurance that doesn't meet with Scripture. But those who by God's grace have received him, him and have the fruit of that salvation showing in their life, not perfectly, but clearly it is there, that is what we need to beware of is this false assurance not a struggle with assurance that is often happening in the lives of Christian believers. All that being said, it is imperative for God's people to appropriate all that God is teaching us here in Romans, and we need to apply what we are learning here in order that our assurance would be built up and so that we would grow as his disciples and be faithful witnesses of his grace and salvation in this dark world. We, we need to remember once again who we formerly were outside of Christ and who we presently are united to Christ and who we will one day be when Christ returns. All of this Paul teaches in Romans and in particular in Romans 8. So the question is that I want to deal with for the remaining few minutes is how do we respond biblically? What do we learn from our text about how to respond to these hindrances to assurance? to the assurance of salvation. Number one, as we talked about sin being uh, a hindrance to assurance of salvation, well, we are told right in our text to mortify indwelling sin. That's the first thing. Mortify indwelling sin. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 8. Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we are no longer condemned when we are in Christ. Uh, Secondly, we are no longer enslaved but free. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus, again, union with Christ language, from the law of sin and death. So we are no longer condemned. We are no longer enslaved, but we are set free in Christ. Thirdly, verses 10 and 11, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. So 
Here we're being told one thing after another about our position in Christ, about who we are in Christ. We're no longer condemned. We are no longer enslaved, but we've been set free in Christ. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He, he then says, therefore, so then, in verse 12, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, but rather put to death the deeds of the flesh. Put to death the sin that remains in you. Don't allow that indwelling remaining sin to gain life and strength and and to grow roots and to grow. Whatever it may be. Is it dishonesty? Is it lust? Whatever it may be, you kill it. Mortify the flesh. Keep it on life support. You see, this sin can be a powerful enemy to assurance. And so we must not let it develop and colonize our hearts and minds. Dear ones, let me ask you a question. Do you take this seriously? Do you take the mortification of sin, remaining sin in your own life, seriously? If you don't, you must. Perhaps anger has set up camp in your heart. Maybe it's selfish ambition. Ambition can be blinding. It can blind you from Christ and blind you from the needs of your fellow believers. Perhaps it's a love for this world that overshadows your love for Christ. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's porn, which feeds lust. It could be any number of things. But allowing sin to colonize your life is not an option. It's not an option for any one of us in this room. We must repent and put to death these sins, not giving them a place in our lives or in our hearts. Dear ones, we are sons of God. I remember when I was playing for the uh, youth national team, I was 16 years old, and we were actually traveling to Honduras uh, to play in the CONCACAF tournament there. And, and I, I remember it like it was yesterday. Coach looking at us and saying, boys, do you see that patch on your sweat jacket? United States of America. Represent your country well. Represent your country well. And in a sense, we are told here, we are sons of God. We are privileged. We're blessed. We have the Spirit. We're united to Christ. Now we live like it. We don't live in our sin. We've been freed from that. We repent and put to death those sins, not giving them a place in our lives. We are sons of God, co-heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ, no longer slaves and debtors to the flesh. Oh, no, we live by the Spirit according to God's word and not according to the trends of this world. And by God's grace, according to his word, we will cultivate and strengthen the assurance of this reality. We want to walk. Do you, dear believer, want to walk in the confidence and joy of the assurance of your salvation? Then do not let sin colonize your life. Repent of it. Turn from it. Look to Christ for forgiveness and grace and strength to kill those sins and to carry on. Secondly, don't neglect the church and the means of grace. No, devote yourself to the church. Devote yourself to the church, to worship and the means of grace and to the fellowship. Don't stay on the margins. Acts 2.42, the early Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. God meets with his people in worship. It's his holy and dynamic spiritual context that God strengthens the assurance of his people. It's in this context he does this. How many times have you been despairing in life, questioning God's love, doubting his promises, and then you hear the gospel? Then you hear the love of God being proclaimed to you and your heart is encouraged and buoyed up? How many times have you been discouraged and then you've heard God's promises proclaimed to you uh, in baptism and at the Lord's table? And as you sing God's praise with the congregation, then suddenly the sun begins to pierce through the clouds. I cannot tell you how many times, dear ones, over the years when, when I've been going through a challenge or a difficulty and, and I'll come here on the Lord's Day and, and we will begin the service and my heart feels dry or my, my faith feels weak. And then the congregation begins to sing and I look out and I see the faces of those who have had great loss and trial and difficulty 
trials and difficulties I know about because I'm your pastor. And it buoys up my heart. And then we come to the table and I'm, 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 I'm receiving the, the bread and the wine and, and administering it and seeing God's people coming. And, and all of us are meant to recognize that in this spiritual context of Lord's Day worship, that the means of grace strengthen and encourage us and build up our assurance of faith. You begin to hear your heart say in the midst of worship, Why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. You might think of the words of William Cooper, quote, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face. That's what we get in public worship. That's what we get in the fellowship of the church. That's what we get in the midweek Bible studies. That's what we get with with coffee together uh, during the week where we encourage one another and pray for one another and lift and build one another up. And that, dear ones, is what we need more than ever right now. Amen? Not, not Not a new president. That's not our greatest need. Our greatest need is not to clean up the swamp in Washington. Every channel you turn on, on the TV, will tell you that that's our greatest need. That will solve all of our problems. It won't. People thought Obama was the Messiah. And then people thought Trump was the Messiah. I don't think anybody thought Biden was the Messiah. But people are looking for a new Messiah. Sometimes we can be caught up in that, thinking, you know, if we could just get the political system. I I want the political system to be fixed. I have strong views politically, which you don't hear from this pulpit. And it's because primarily I don't want to waste your time hearing from me about my political views from this pulpit. I want you to hear about the grace of God in Christ, which is your only true and lasting hope. It builds up our assurance. Lord's Day morning and evening worship, by the way, Lord's Day morning and evening worship is central to our discipleship as believers. It's central to our piety. It's central to the building up of our assurance of faith. That's why all throughout Scripture and our Reformed Confession, there is a high emphasis upon the nature and practice of the means of grace for you and for your family. Thirdly, Remember God's promises in the midst of your suffering. Suffering often challenges assurance of faith. It challenges uh, the idea, the concept, the reality that we are God's children. Every Christian will suffer in one way or another. We live in a valley of tears. We live in the wilderness. We do not live in the promised land. Joel Osteen tells us to have our best life now. We will never have our best life now. We are in the valley filled with tears, filled with suffering, filled with struggling. Our best life will be later. And that's where we put our hope. On this side of heaven, we experience sleepless nights as concerns fill our hearts and minds. Trials can often foster doubts in our hearts. Like David in the wilderness, fleeing from Saul or fleeing from his son Absalom cries out, wondering if God had abandoned him. But it's in these times that we need to be under the means of grace with God's people, recalling the unchanging and steadfast promises of God. It's in times of suffering that we need to remember the eschatological hope, the forward-looking hope of our salvation, that one day this suffering will end. One day it will end. I called an audible to our very patient musicians before the service, they played, Oh God, Beyond All Praising. You heard it for our opening uh, song during our uh, preparation for worship. But this hymn, it so beautifully encapsulates all that's being taught here. 
and all that we're considering this morning. O oh God, beyond all praising, we worship you today and sing the love amazing that songs cannot repay. For we can only wonder at every gift you send, at blessings without number and mercies without end. We lift our hearts before you and wait upon your word. We honor and adore you, our great and mighty Lord. It's like little chicks with their mouths open. We're waiting, Lord. We adore you. We trust in you. Feed us. Verse 2, the flower of earthly splendor in time must surely die. Its fragile bloom surrender to you, the Lord most high. But hidden from all nature, the eternal seed is sown, though small in mortal stature, to heaven's garden grown. For Christ, your gift from heaven, from death has set us free. And we through him are given the final victory. Do you hear the words of hope in the midst of the tears? This is an expression of true biblical Christianity in this hymn. Then hear, O gracious Savior, accept the love we bring, that we who know your favor may serve you as our king. And whether our tomorrows be filled with good or ill, we'll triumph through our sorrows and rise to bless you still. To marvel at your beauty and glory in your ways and make a joyful duty our sacrifice of praise. Beloved, that's why we sing the old hymns. That is Romans 8. We give praise God in the midst of our suffering. Romans 8, 23 through 25 connects this to our adoption. Look there with me, Romans 8, 23 through 25. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait Eagerly for what? Adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. We come into the fullness of all of our privileges as adopted sons when Christ returns. And right now we groan. We groan inwardly for that blessed reality. And then he goes on to write, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Fourthly, fourthly, cling to a reliable Christ by faith and not to your unreliable feelings. That's the response to assurance being afflicted because the focus is on the feelings and not on Christ. Cling to a reliable Christ by faith and not to your unreliable feelings. A hyper-introspection about one's inner experience with God can undermine the assurance of salvation. Uh, But focusing upon Christ and what He has done will strengthen it. Now, let me say this. There are certain authors. There are certain movements within evangelicalism. There are certain traditions that focus heavily to a fault upon Christian experience and feelings and not upon the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. We need to remember that. We need to be careful about that. A lot of times people come to me and they say, Pastor, I'm feeling a little overwhelmed and afflicted in my assurance. And and I say, well, what are you reading? Then they tell me. I said, all right, go ahead and start reading some Luther. Sometimes there can be a a hyper-introspection to some of our authors, and sometimes they can write things that make it sound like if you're not having this amazing experience with God, you might not even be a Christian. And that's just not the case at all. Now, there are also movements where it's all about outward performance and tradition and going through the liturgy and just, just going through the motions. 
and there's no experience at all. That's a problem. But we need to be concerned, I think, mostly about the first. This is why God commands us in Hebrews 12 and Colossians 3 to keep our eyes on Jesus, to set our eyes on things above where Christ is and not upon things that are on the earth. Our feelings can fail us and confuse us, especially those who have very tender consciences. But Christ will never fail us. Christ will never fail us. And united to Him, we are indwelt by God's Spirit, the Spirit of adoption, through whom we cry out, Abba, Father. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with Him, we shall also be with Him in glory. Cling to a reliable Christ by faith. Finally, embrace a salvation in Christ alone apart from good works. You want your assurance to be afflicted? Then just go ahead and believe that you have a part in your salvation, that you are working together with God, that He's your co-pilot. But you see, that's not what Paul has been teaching at all in Romans. Embrace the salvation in Christ alone. This is what Paul has been preaching from the opening verses of Romans. And holding to a salvation by cooperation will be the undoing of assurance. Those who are legalistic are forever seeking to legitimize themselves by their good works. And they are often found boasting in them or putting down others who don't measure up to whatever they are focused on. This attitude stems ultimately from a kind of deep insecurity of their own salvation. And it becomes a big problem. But we know... We know that salvation is in Christ alone. There are also others who would put their hope in their works and always have this concern that they're not doing enough. Even those who I've known for years who have been under faithful preaching will struggle with this. Have I done enough? Have I done enough to be accepted by God? Well, the answer is you've done everything to not be accepted by God. But by His grace, through the gift of faith, you've been united to His Son. And that is where your hope lies. Romans 3, 19. Look there with me. Romans 3, 19. Paul makes this abundantly clear. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law... No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law was not given to God's people to save them, to save us. The law was given to show us our sin so that we would see our need for a Savior. Praise God for verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a what? A gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Do you see anything in here about how we can work ourselves to God, about how we can earn a place in heaven, about how we can produce good works that are favorable to God in order for Him to love us and be our Father? They're not there. Only grace. Grace upon grace. Gift upon gift. God put His Son forward as a propitiation, as a wrath-bearer on the cross. Christ lived a sinless life. He died a sacrificial and atoning death and became a wrath-bearer for our sins, bearing the penalty of our sins. And then He went into the grave, and the third day He rose again from the dead. Victory over sin and hell and death for you and for me. And by His grace, He has raised us up from spiritual death to spiritual life by uniting us to His Son. And in His Son, we are justified. And in His Son, we are 
adopted into his family. And in his son, we are sanctified and are being sanctified. And one day we shall be glorified. The links of the chain are all there and they are strong. They are unbreakable. From the beginning, from when God called you to the end, when he will bring you to glory, there are links in the chain that cannot be broken. Regeneration, justification, adoption, sanctification, and glorification. And nothing can break this golden chain. We are in Christ, and we are as safe and secure in our salvation as he is in his place in heaven. Paul finishes in verse 25 by saying, This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, dear ones, do you see why God wants us to look out from this vista in the book of Romans? Why he doesn't want us to do the speedboat across Romans and do one sermon on Romans chapter 8? And why we are in the glass-bottom boat going a half a mile an hour, just rejoicing in and taking in all the riches of the grace of our salvation that has been lavished upon us in his Son. Dear one, you are not only justified by grace through faith, you are adopted You are sons in the Son. And the inheritance that the Father gave Christ when He was exalted on the right hand of God, that is your inheritance too. Because you are in Him. And it cannot be taken from you. Let us all live with this view to Christ. Let us recognize that to strengthen The assurance of our faith, we do not primarily look within or to our own good works. No, we look to our union with Christ, reinforced and powerfully represented in our baptism at the table and through the preaching of the word. We look to Christ who will strengthen our assurance that we truly are loved by God and kept by God forever. May that Compel us unto a life of good works for the glory of God. Loving our neighbor, witnessing to our friends, loving our spouse, being faithful to our church, all to the glory of God. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for our union with Christ and for our sonship in him. We pray, O Lord, that this glorious truth would build up our assurance of faith, would strengthen us for the days to come, that we would stand firm, and that in this valley of tears we would persevere and bring you glory as we are pilgrims on the way. And we pray this in Jesus' name.